So some of you know that I'm an attorney, a lawyer. Um, some of you have forgiven me for that. Others are still working on it. Um, but uh, one of the things in the law that uh, we deal with sometimes, there's a defense, and it's called the... Tell them I'm not here, whoever's from there. Um, there's a, a defense, and it's called the defense of unclean hands, which sounds kind of cool. Um, and what it is, is, is if, if somebody sues, and this is in civil court, right? Plaintiffs and defendants versus the state and defendants, which most of you are familiar with. Um, so, I, okay, not all of you. Um, me, though. Uh, so, plaintiffs and defendants. And so you sue and you say, hey, uh, this guy breached a contract, right? He, I, he was supposed to pay me, and he didn't pay me. And then the other guy comes back and he says, yeah, but... The contract that I breached, you actually tricked me into signing. You lied to me or you committed fraud to get me to sign it in the first place. So even though it's true, I didn't do my part under the contract, you also don't have clean hands. You don't have clean hands. Now, you guys know this defense? That's, I just wanted to tell you about it. This is a random thought. No, it's, this has to do with the sermon. Um, the idea is that the person trying to bring judgment on somebody else cannot bring judgment on them when they themselves are also unclean. They themselves have also done what is wrong. You can't come out and say, you're bad and you did this, when if you look back the other way, the person has in the very same way or very similar ways broken the law, done what's wrong. And so we're going to see that here this morning as we walk through this. Uh, but I, I am fascinated and saddened by where we are right now in the world because what I see is I see a lot of judgment. I see a lot of plaintiffs out there bringing a case against the other side. I, I don't know that I've had a time in my life where I have seen as much moral outrage from the two sides of, let's just call it the political spectrum, right? On the left, if you ask, and I'm talking about the Twitter left, like the extreme left, if you ask them, they're going to say that those on the right are evil and want to destroy people and want to ruin the country. On the right, and I'm talking the extreme right, okay? You know who I'm talking about. Those folks think that the left is evil and wants to ruin them and destroy their country and destroy their kids and whatever, right? So you have these two sides. Most, most of us are somewhere in the middle of that. But those two extreme sides, they're outraged morally and they're casting judgment on the other side about how bad they are and whatever, neither one looking back to themselves about their own unclean hands. There's a lot of holier than thou out there in, on Facebook and Twitter and the world out there. People are feel real comfortable, real confident bringing judgment to other people. But what we're going to see is that that doesn't work. It's kind of like the dad who tells his son, son, listen, I really need you to handle your anger better. you got an anger problem. And then the son says to dad, what about that guy who cut you off yesterday, right? What about your anger problem? It's real hard to tell one person to do something when you struggle in the same way. That's not a personal thing that's happened to me, by the way. I was just bringing that up as a, um, it hasn't. Uh, we're all hypocrites a little too often, a little too often. We tend to justify our own issues and vilify others. In other words, when I make a mistake, it's because I was having a bad day, right? 
I make it, it's probably actually your fault when we really get down to it, right? I'm actually a good person. I made the mistake. There's a lot of factors. Let's just kind of, that's not a big deal. You make a mistake. That's just who you are. You're just a bad person, right? This is the way that we sort of live. This is the way that we sort of think, and it's often the way that we talk. The political side, you see it all the time. You guys are blah, 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 and they go, well, what about this? And the person goes, well, that doesn't really matter as long as we get this. And we're like, well, it matters to the people who it affects, right? Your mistakes are no big deal. Other people's mistakes are a very big deal. They're messed up people. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this letter to the Romans. We've talked about what it is. It's a letter to the Christians, the Christ followers in Rome. And if you remember, you had a, a good number of them who were Gentiles, means everyone that's not a Jew, and a good number of them who were Jews. And then the Jews had come from probably from Pentecost, okay, probably from Pentecost, and had come back to the places where they lived and had spread the gospel the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power of forgiveness of sins, and people got saved, okay? But these churches probably were primarily Jewish. And then the Jews were expelled from Rome. And so the Gentile Christians became who was in the church. The Jews were gone. So the churches became very Gentile in their flavor, very Gentile in the way that they did things. And then the Jews came back. Now Paul's writing them a letter. So a lot of what we see is sort of this, how do we deal with this Gentile and Jew thing? And there are things for us to learn, all of us, Jew, Gentile, Christian, unbeliever, whoever you are, there are things for us to learn about what Paul is instructing them here. And what we've been going through is this argument. I don't know if we've already, are we going to pass that out? Go ahead. She's going to pass out a piece of paper. Don't start reading it right now. Uh, we'll get to it, Lord willing, in a little while. It's another one of my... Uh, argument papers. It's, the letters are a little smaller. I wrote more this time. Sorry. But you know what? This isn't play, you know, play time. This is real stuff. We're, we're doing the, you're here because you know this is the real stuff. So we're going to get into it. Um, but he's making this argument. Okay. And we did sort of the first part of the argument, verses 15 through 32 in chapter one and what was happening. And Paul is kind of giving this general explanation about Gentiles primarily and how they had basically pushed away God, even though they could know about him, and did all these, these things, these sinful things, right? Ending that with, yeah, and, and people not only do those things, but approve of those who do them, and they know that the people who do these things deserve death. But now what's going to happen is, because this is, what was, this is probably what was happening when the Jewish Christians were reading that first chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those Gentiles. They're messed up. We know. We know God's going to judge those Gentiles. And then Paul's going to come at them with what it means for the Jew to be a sinner also. And so we're going to get into that. I'm going to let her pass that out. You guys can just set that aside for right now. We're going to get to it. If you're online, by the way, that's, there's a link there underneath what you're watching. Or uh, there's a link there's a link on Facebook. There's a link on YouTube to it. You can get that, uh, this thing, the gospel argument thing. We'll get to that later. Let's pray before we get started. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. Lord, that it would not be uh, my ideas, but the ideas that you've given us here in Scripture and that we would understand them more clearly. We want to understand the gospel, Jesus, because the fullness of the gospel sets us free in a way that nothing else in this world sets people free. We thank you for your death, 
for your resurrection, Lord, that you would come and become a person, a man, and die for us when you were God and the right thing, the righteous thing, would have been for you to just say, bye, and destroy all of us. But instead, you took the way of mercy and grace. And we pray that we would understand that more deeply today. In your name, amen. All right. All right. We're going to start in chapter 2. Now, what you have here on this sheet, just by the way, is not in the order that we see it here. We have two things. We have Paul making this argument that I sort of take and put into what I would call like sort of a syllogistic argument form, meaning this, then this, therefore this. But what's happening as Paul's writing, you don't write like that if you're trying to be persuasive. You write in a way that sort of puts it all together and flows. And so we're going to read that way from the scripture, the better way. This is not scripture, of course. This is just David making, you know, kind of putting the argument together. But we're going to read it from the scripture and see what he has to say. Let's start with verse 1. It says, Therefore, you are inexcusable. Now, the you here, he does not say, therefore, the Jew is inexcusable. Why? He's, he's coming to it. He doesn't want to scare anybody off right away because they were just real happy about the Gentiles being messed up people, right? And so he says, therefore, you are inexcusable. Oh, man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You who judge these other people who are going, yeah, those darn Gentiles, you yourselves are doing the same things. You may, you may notice that this echoes a much greater speaker than Paul, although Paul is speaking with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, who says this to us in Matthew 7, 1, probably the most famous verse these days. Uh, it's Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Some people think that this means no one can judge anything, anytime, whatever. But that's obviously silly, right? You couldn't make any judgments about anything. How would you know how to buy, what to buy, or what car to buy, or, you know, who is a good person to be around, who's a bad person? You make judgments, right? He's talking about this judgment that's reserved for God. There's judgment that's reserved for God. There's jurisdiction. Jurisdiction, okay? Juris, law, diction, speak. The right to speak the law. In case you were wondering, you don't have jurisdiction about the law. God does. There are certain things in your life that God gives you jurisdiction over. This, the judgment or condemnation of other people, is not your jurisdiction. God will take care of that. For those of you who have been taking on that burden, you can relax today. Not your burden. Not your burden. God's burden. That it's a jurisdictional difference. It doesn't mean that people aren't doing anything wrong. What it means is that God is the judge. God is the judge. Now, that, the reason beyond just God being the judge that we don't judge is because, frankly, we're not, we're not good at it. We're sort of incapable of it. Let's keep going, Matthew 3, 7, 3 through 5. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? But do not consider the plank in your own eye. We've talked about this before. We actually went through the whole Sermon on the Mount. You can go on the app and, and uh, watch those sermons if you want. 
But you're sitting here going like, yeah, I think you've got, uh, you know, some sawdust there. Meanwhile, there's a two by four coming out your head, right? And you're going, let me see that boot. You're knocking things over. You don't know what you're doing. Meanwhile, this person's like, that seems like that should be taken care of first. Why do you do that? Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrites. First, remove the plank from your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, that does not mean we don't use judgment about what's right and wrong. Let me be clear. That does not mean we do not use judgment about what's right and wrong. You should know what's right and wrong. You have the scriptures. You have nature. God's written the law in your heart. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. You know what's right and wrong. But those who are outside the church, the unbeliever, the people that people really like to judge... These Jewish people really liked to judge Gentiles and Samaritans and basically anybody that wasn't Jewish, right? Sometimes, hear me out, sometimes people in the church are seen as somewhat judgmental towards people who are outside the church. You've heard of this? Yeah, me too. Me too. Sometimes people in the church are judgmental outside. Inside the church, by the way, we actually do have jurisdiction to judge Not condemnation, not saying who's going to heaven and hell, that type of thing. That's for God. But judgment for sure. 1 Corinthians 5.12. For what do I have to do with judging those who are also who are outside? So so Paul makes it clear. The Holy Spirit's inspiring Paul here to write. And he's he's given some jurisdictional guidelines. I don't have anything to do with those outside the church. To go to them and say, you need to do this or you need to do that or you're in big trouble. I don't have jurisdiction. Okay? But then he says this. Do you not judge those who are inside? And his point is, it's a rhetorical question. Yeah, you certainly do. You certainly do. We're actually supposed to judge and discipline those inside the church. Hey, don't walk out. No, just kidding. There, no one's walking out. Now, we remove the plank from our own eye first. But sometimes we remove people from the church who refuse to show humility and honor God with repentance. Who refuse to repent. We do judge inside the church. People don't like that. People don't like that, right? Either they just dislike the idea of judging at all, and anytime anybody judges, they're like, Matthew 7, 1, judge not, be not judged. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, Jesus goes on and talks about people actually in the church just a few sentences later. So he's not talking about that. They don't like it, right? Or they just don't like the idea that the church in general would be in the business of judgment. Here's the thing. It's not my idea. Frankly, I would prefer not to have to deal with it. Okay? But it's in the scripture, so it's true. We do judge inside the church. You guys got real quiet. I don't know what's up there. <laughs> Those outside the church, God judges. That doesn't mean that there's not judgment for those outside the church. It means that it's God's jurisdiction, not ours. We know from the scriptures what is going to happen to those who refuse to give their lives to God. Those who refuse to repent, those who refuse to follow him, those who refuse to uh, receive and experience salvation from their sin through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection. We know what's going to happen. Okay, we read it last week, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. People, people know what's true. And they push it away. They hold it down. And what's going to happen? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. You're not supposed to be happy about that. Yay, 
hey, people are going to get judged. But it is true, they are. But here's the thing. It doesn't say wrath from you. The wrath of John Smith at Acts Church will be revealed against ungodliness. That's not what it says. Because it's not your jurisdiction. It's not your jurisdiction. God is going to judge the world, and he does not need your help. He doesn't need your help. Next verse here, verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. It's according to truth against those who practice such things, okay? So what what he's saying is, we know that everything you read in chapter 1, and as we're continuing in chapter 2, speaking to the Jew, we know it's in truth. Why? We have the scriptures. So we know that the people who do the things that they ought not to do, who push the truth of God down and do their own thing and make themselves their own God and worship the creature rather than the creator, we know that God's judgment against those who do that is true, just, righteous. It ought to happen. In fact, God could not be good and not eventually do it. We know that, right? And he's kind of setting these folks up. He's kind of setting these folks up. Because the Jewish men and the Jewish women, they knew this. They had the scriptures. They've been taught the scriptures. They could not deny that the people who did all these things that we saw in Romans 1 would receive wrath and judgment and death. But here, Paul's not talking about those people. He's using that as an example to talk to the Jews directly because he's accusing them of doing the same things that they were judging the Gentiles for. And what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? What's good for the Gentile is good for the Jew is what he's saying. Verse 3, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? You think that you can do what you do, cast it off as I had a bad day. Look at what the Gentiles do. Judge that harshly. They're bad people. And that somehow they're going to get judgment and you're not? You are kidding yourself. Again, a rhetorical question. It's an argument to show the obviousness. The obviousness. He's saying, you, Jewish people, you think you're better than the Gentiles. And you judge them for their wickedness. And you tell them they will be judged and die. But you're doing the same things. The same things that you're judging them for, you're doing. And do you think you'll escape judgment? It's not going to happen. Why? Because judgment is according to God's truth. Judgment is according to God's truth. Now, I grew up at a time, in my experience, in my experience, when Christians, I think, or a lot of Christians, I can't speak for everybody, I didn't know them all, they acted a lot like we see sort of the attitude of the Jewish people here in the first century. There was kind of an us, and there was kind of a them, and there was a pretty strong idea going around that them were bad, and that us were good. Pretty strong idea. That's why people in the world have gotten that impression. And all the things that they said that these people did, these non-Christians did, you know, this is bad and this is bad. Some of the things weren't even bad. They just didn't happen to fit or comport with the traditions that we had. And so they were bad, right? They were bad. It's a lot of moralism, a lot of judgment. People were acting and thinking in ways that were unrighteous, them. Meanwhile, there were not a sufficient number of two-by-fours pulled out of eyes to see 
the unrighteousness and the judgment that these other people deserved. Christians had all kinds of stuff they needed to deal with. And that stuff, surprise, surprise, was not talked about. We didn't talk about that stuff. Now, if you come here, if you're regularly here, you know we do. Starting with me, I need to be told what's right, and all of us need to be told what's right. So we don't shy away from those things. But when I was growing up, it, was, it seemed a little more like that. If those people out there were going to be judged by God because they were bad, how much more so were we who were in the church going to be judged too? Because you know what we didn't have? We didn't have clean hands. We didn't have clean hands. The people in the church didn't have clean hands. And so there we were, like these first century Jews, judging those outside the church. And meanwhile, I think this may have something to do with the exodus of people as they kind of get to age 18, 19, 20, 21. A lot of people, are, are, they, they want to blame it on a lot of things. One of which is like, oh, they get into college and the atheist professor turns them away from the Lord. Okay, then you didn't teach them well enough. Fair enough. We need to do better at that. But maybe what happened was as they grew up, they had parents who were very apt and quick to judge the world and very slow to judge themselves. It's not a particularly um, attractive thing, hypocrisy. And so I wonder just how many of them have left because of that. Well, the way to fix that is stop judging. Start in the house of God, then worry about what other people are doing. Paul's saying, look, these religious folks, they're not going to avoid judgment. They end up being their own judges because the things they say are bad, they do themselves. That's why this next verse is so important. Romans 2, 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It is only, this is important, this is part of the gospel argument, it is only God's goodness, only God's goodness that leads to repentance. You know whose goodness it is not? yours. You did not come to Jesus. Those of you who are in Christ or Christ followers, you did not come to Jesus because you were so good. Like you got better and better and figured it out. And then we're like, okay, I'm with you, Jesus. I get it. Like we're, that's not how it worked. You were saved out of the muck and mire and ugliness of your sin. It was his goodness that led to your repentance. It is only his goodness that leads to anyone's repentance, period. To act like that is not true is not just absurd, it's evil. It's evil. And it sends a message to those who need Jesus that somehow there are some people who are just good enough. Because that's what you're saying. Not, not you specifically, but some people. The only reason we haven't already been judged, long before you came to Christ, the reason you hadn't been judged and sent to hell, away from God because of your sins, is because of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. God's patient. He is patient. He had to be so patient with me. And I wish that he had been able to stop being patient when I got saved. But he's continuing to have to be so patient with me. So patient. Forbearance and long-suffering. But let me just tell you something. If you're not in Christ, or if you are, 
Do not mistake God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering for weakness or lack of resolve that he will bring judgment. The fact that he is patient now, forbearing and good and long-suffering, does not mean that he will push away the judgment that is coming forever. In fact, he tells us very specifically here that it is coming. That it is coming. But when you harshly judge the unbeliever, or, or as these Jewish folks, harshly judging the Gentile folks at that time, you show that you despise the goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering that God showed you. Somehow it was good enough for you, but not good enough for your neighbor. Somehow they're bad. And instead of grace and forbearance and desire to see them come to know Jesus, you, you look at them and you other them. Meanwhile, God didn't other you. He said, my child, my child, I'm, ha I'm having to be very patient with you. I'm having to forbear, but come to me. And we're supposed to be his hands and feet calling to the world the same thing. Not that you're not without sin. The whole point is that you have sin. That's what we're doing in these first couple chapters. It's that you're sinful and you have no excuse for it. But the good news is that God saves. God saves. Recognize that our forgiveness is by God's grace. We only received it by his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. And if you're going to love your neighbor... You're going to want and desire and preach to them God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering in his salvation. That's what you're going to do. What's, listen to this. Luke 10, 25-29. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up. Never good. By the way, if you're in the New Testament and the lawyer stands up, it's always bad. It's always bad. And tested him. Because lawyers, that's how arrogant they are. They think they can test God saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, this is Jesus, said to him, what, what is written in the law? Going to the lawyer, like, what's the law say? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, which is like the perfect answer. It's a good lawyer, I guess. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Why does he say that? Because he doesn't treat his neighbor as himself. Who does he want his neighbor to be? Oh, it's just the people you like. It's just the people who are like you and the ones that you like. Those are the ones who you treat as yourself, which he probably doesn't even do that, or at least I don't always. But that's not what Jesus is going to say. He tells a whole story. You guys know the story probably. It's the Good Samaritan. How this Samaritan man goes and helps this Jewish, this Jewish man was waylaid, was beat up on the side of the road. And by, all right by him, two religious leaders among the Jews, a priest and a Levite, each walk by him and go, I, I don't have time for that. And a Samaritan man, a man that was hated by the Jews, disliked, they did not like Samaritans. He stops and gives him comfort and aid and takes him to an inn and pays for his recovery. And Jesus says, which one of them is been the good neighbor here. And the lawyer's like, I'm somewhere in time, you know. <laughs> the one who showed mercy, right? The one who showed mercy. But 
They didn't want the Samaritans to be counted in the category of neighbor. That's not what they wanted. And sometimes it's not what we want. If you're going to be a good neighbor and you've accepted the grace of God for yourself, how can you go and judge your neighbor harshly? You needed his grace. They need his grace. The grace of God, the gospel that Paul is arguing for here, is for you and your neighbor. It is for everyone, and your neighbor is everyone. There isn't anybody in this room that's not your neighbor. There isn't anybody out there that's not your neighbor. In terms of this verse, in terms of this command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why does it follow? Because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're going to love those who he created in his image and likeness and loves passionately and died for. So easy for us to, whether it's your own family, my son, my daughter is more important than your son or your daughter, my kid's an honor student. Great. My mom never had that uh, bumper step. Sorry, mom. <laughs> my son says, yes, your honor. Um, it was at that time. I'm better now. Listen, all the things in Romans 1 that, pe- that are listed that people are doing, that's who the gospel is for. Because you are one of those people. It's for the weird person that you try to avoid. That's your neighbor. And you go, he's weird. Probably. Yes, I am. I'm weird. It's for me, though, too. It's for the homeless person who you've judged for their mental illness or their substance abuse addiction. You're driving by, and there's the tents, and you're going, what's wrong with these people? You know what's wrong with them? Same thing that's wrong with you. You know what's for them? The same grace is for you. It's for the undocumented worker trying to take care of her family. It's for the Muslim. It's for the Democrat. It's for the Republican. It's for the sinner. Everyone. Because it was for you. Well, you were yet a sinner and an enemy of God. Be careful how you talk about the people in the world. Because when you judge them, you judge you. Because the grace of God that was for you is for them too. Spend more of your time praying for them. And not this kind of prayer. Lord, I just pray that they'd stop being such turds and doing the (laughs) stuff that they're doing. They're so vile. Pray, God, how can I show your grace to this person that they might be attracted by you, that you might draw them with your Holy Spirit, and they might be saved and live forever? Worry less about the behavior. God takes care of that. He wants their heart. He wants their heart. It's for the sinner because it was for you while you were a sinner and an enemy of God. Lord willing, we're going to get to this verse. In, this is part of the gospel argument, Romans 5 eight. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for you to figure it out. Like, okay, they're worth dying for now. It was while you were an enemy. It was while you were an enemy that God died for you. 
there are some sides of the spectrum where people, where people can go awry. One is what we've seen, sort of this judgment, harsh judgment. The other, and that's a failure of love. God loves you. You love other people. That's easy. There's another failure of love, and that is to act like nothing that anybody does is wrong. Also a mistake. That goes to the Romans 1 stuff. Not only do these things, but approve of those who do them. That's not what we're saying here. We're not saying go, therefore, we don't have to worry about anything. Nope. The whole point of this is that we are under judgment. Don't lose your zealous fervor for righteousness and truth. Want it. Want it. But don't become judgmental in jurisdictions that don't belong to you. Instead, pray. Love your enemy. Do good for those who treat you poorly, who persecute you, right? God's grace doesn't mean that sin's not a big deal. God's forbearance and long-suffering and goodness don't mean that sin's not a big deal. God does judge sin, and you can tell people that. It's part of the gospel. They need to know the disease before you give them the cure. God does judge sin, but they're forgiven the same way you're forgiven. And therefore, your desire for them and your heart towards them should be the same heart that God had toward you. But if you judge, I'm just telling you this, and you act like you're better than other people, you do show that you despise God's goodness that leads to repentance. You think you are good enough. And if you've done that, you have missed the gospel entirely. So I'm glad you're studying this with us, if that's you. All of that leads to the result of acting this way. Listen to what he says about these folks. Uh, 2, 5 through 6. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. So, you've got to understand something. Your deeds deserve death. We're going to get into that. That's part of the argument too. But when we have hard hearts and think we're better than other people, we're unrepentant in that. That is an unrepentant, impenitent heart. If you're unrepentant, are you saved? No. The repentant are the ones that come to Jesus. If you think that Jesus is just there as sort of this ancillary thing that you put on, you know, so that you can look good or so you can, you know, be, I don't know who you'd be trying to impress these days. People don't like Christians. But if you were, you're wrong about that. You're wrong about that. It's our repentance. It's letting God make our hearts soft because those who aren't, the day of wrath and the revelation of righteous judgment are there where God will render to you according to your deeds. If you understand your own forgiveness and the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, you ought not to be hard-hearted. You ought to be soft-hearted. If you are hard-hearted, you may want to think about whether you're just unrepentant yourself. You may be saved, but you become unrepentant. Not good. The rules are laid out clearly. You're going to get what you deserve. And here's what it is. This is what he says, Romans 2, 7 through 11. Let's hit that up. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. 
But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. You're a pastor's kid. Your grandpa was the this. You've gone to church. God's got no partiality. You know who gets eternal life? Those who do good, continuing, patiently, doing good all the time. You know who gets hell? Everybody else, the self-seeking who don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And what do they get? Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. Now, if you're one of those first people who do good continually, right? If that's, you know, you're seeking glory and honor and immortality and, and you got truth and righteousness, you're doing that, you don't need my sermon. You don't need to be here. You've got it figured out. Here's the unfortunate thing. That does not describe anyone. That first part isn't about real people. The only one who that'd be true of is Jesus Christ. One of the things that we're going to see, this is, this is put out there so that we understand that the only way that you receive eternal life on your own merit is if you're good all the time. And nobody has been and nobody is. So we're, what category are we in? We're all in the other category. We are those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And we all deserve, have earned indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish because we all do evil. That's the point of the gospel. This is what everyone deserves. Only, only perfect people go to heaven. And there was only one perfect person, Jesus. The rest of us do evil. We act sinfully. We think sinfully. We suppress the truth. We serve ourselves. And Paul's point here is that this applies equally to Jew and Gentile. Being the chosen of God does not get you out of this if you're a sinner. I don't care what tribe you've associated with at this point. I'm with these good people. They're for this. Everybody thinks whatever side they're on, they're on the right side of history. They're on the right side of this. They're doing the right thing. They're the glorious virtue warriors. Listen, if you have sinned, you have indignation and wrath stored up for you. That's all there is to it. That's the bad news. Only God is holy, but here's the good news. We can be holy by the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of God's grace. Jesus rose from the dead so that we can avoid the second death, the anguish, the tribulation. He would not have come to become a man and die for us if we were described by this, by patient continuance, did good and sought for glory, honor, and immortality, obeying truth and working good. If that was human beings, God would not have had to come and die for you. He had to come and die because we were the other thing, sinners. And he loved us so much that he became a man to die for us. Our destiny was right here, Romans 2.12. For as many of us sinned, as have sinned without law, will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. This is describing everybody. The Gentile, they don't have the law. In other words, they don't have the scriptures. They will perish outside the law, their own, their own stuff judging them. For those of you, the Jews he's talking about, who are in the law, you will be judged by the law. What's the common theme? Both judged. Both judged. There's no getting out of it. Jew and Gentile stand in the same place. They're judged. One group chosen by God had the scriptures, the revealed word of God, and one didn't. But they both sinned, and they both deserve judgment. 
This is where we sit, but for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. Uh, verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Once again, this applies to none of us. None of us have been justified by doing good works. That will become very clear as he continues on to the argument. He's making this point now because the Jewish people, he's saying, you didn't do the thing. You heard the law. You were hearers of the law. Hey, you guys come in here. We read the scriptures. You hear the law. Have any of you become perfect as a result of it? Probably not. Don't say yes, because you're probably bringing more judgment, okay? Uh, none of us, none of us are there. That's the point. The Jewish people heard and didn't do it. The Gentiles didn't have it and still didn't do it. But they did have something. They did have something. That's what this next section is about, and this is actually really important. We're going to go verse 14 through 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You know what he's saying here? He's saying that Gentiles know the law. Because while they didn't have the scripture, he wrote it on their hearts. And the proof of that is that when they do things that are wrong, they feel accused in their conscience. And when they do things that are right, they feel excused in their conscience, proving that they are a law to themselves. They have the law. This is, this is three parts of the argument within the argument that Paul is making, okay? And if you follow, you can see him. Three parts. The first argument was that people were guilty because God showed them what they need to know through creation. That was part one. Part one. So they're guilty, so they don't have an excuse. Remember, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They start worshiping the creature. Their, their conscience gets seared. That's what we hear here that the Gentiles have this conscience that excuses and accuses them. But we also know that the more that they do wrong, the more that their conscience gets broken, and they don't know what's right and wrong anymore. And they start to feel justified in doing things that are wrong because they've gotten so broken. But the first one was, they can know it through nature. The second one is the one he's done for the Jews here. You have the scripture, so you don't have an excuse. Because everything you needed to know, the Torah, the teaching, first five books of the Bible, it's all there. The law is there, and you broke it. And the third one is, and you, Gentiles, also have the law. And it's not just Gentiles. Every human that's ever been born, it is written on your heart. Therefore, you have no excuse. So what's Paul laying out here? What he's doing is he's setting out all the ways in which we have failed and showing that we knew what we were doing, so we have no defense. We have no excuse. That's what these two chapters are about for the Gentile and for the Jew. The person who says, when they get before God, I didn't know. I didn't know. It's going to get Romans 1 and 2 read to them. God says, yeah, you did. There will be no pleas to ignorance before the judgment seat of God. There will be those who try to say not guilty, and God will judge them guilty because they were without excuse. And there will be those who say guilty 
but Jesus. And God will look to Jesus and his righteousness instead of their guilt. Those are the only two kind of people. Both are guilty. One's guilt has been covered by the blood of Jesus because he paid the price already. The other's guilt is unpaid for because they refused Jesus. Anyone who is listening now or online or who will listen to this sermon later, you can be in the group of people guilty but made not guilty, justified by the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. That can be you. That can be you today. I hope it is. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We're guilty, but instead of getting what we deserve, we get life and more abundantly. That's grace, unmerited favor. We deserve death. We got life. It's an amazing thing. That's why it's called the gospel, the good news. Once you know the bad news, which Paul has laid out exquisitely, here's all the things you do. Starts with the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are like, oh, we know. And the Jews are like, yeah, we know. And then he's like, oh, by the way, Jewish folks, you do all those things too. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's true, right? None of you have an excuse. You're all guilty, but Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ. I'm going to finish reading out this chapter really quick. It's 11:16. It's Mother's Day. You want to go out to lunch? I do care, just not that much. All right. <laughs> Let's finish this out, uh, starting in verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew. This is the first place where he's really like hammering it. And rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I'm going to stop there for a second. The Jewish people at this time were well known for all of these things. Do you remember God had to kick people out of the temple? He's kicking them out of the temple. Why? Because they're stealing. Often from poor people to make them believe that they had to exchange money and pay these high prices so that they could give sacrifice because their hearts were actually right to honor God. Jesus was not having it. He was... He, Kicked him out, big time, committing adultery. Jesus calls him an adulterous generation, right? We have, this, we have this thing here. There is a lot of judgment over the sexual sin of the world. And hey, listen, it's all there in Romans 1. It's all true. It is sinful. Meanwhile, if statistics are true, some huge percentage of the church is addicted to pornography. That's adultery. If you don't know that, that's what it is. If you, look, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. Okay? Do you get mad at other adulterers? And then you, you fill in the blank, the person that you think is a bad person. Meanwhile, you're doing the same thing. 
the Jewish people had all kinds of adulterous practices. They could divorce. They just give their wives a certificate of divorce. Like, I'm done. Here's a certificate of divorce. I'm going on vacation. Go marry somebody else there. Marry. Do the thing that you do when you're married. Well, at first. Uh, come on. It's been a while without a laugh. Let's, let's. And then divorce. Go back. Remarry. It's adultery. Okay? Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. I wasn't there, but that's crazy. Do you rob temples? Sacrilege, right? If you look at all these, they all have kind of a common theme. Who are they stealing from? Who are they sacrilegious towards? Who are they adulterous towards? God. God. They're taking what belongs to God, and they're being sacrilegious, and they're stealing from him, right? They're not giving their offerings. They're not giving their tithes. They're not doing the sacrifices that at that time they were supposed to be doing. Instead, they're keeping the money. There actually is some evidence that some Jewish people may have robbed the temples of pagan gods, which they're not even supposed to go in there or touch that stuff. The rule was, burn it down, break it down. You were not supposed to lust after the gold on the altar, but they were doing that kind of thing too. All of these things they were doing, meanwhile, looking down at other people. It wasn't good. Then he says this, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Can we talk more about circumcision or should we keep going? All right. Therefore, <laughs> if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The Jewish people rely very heavily on the outward signs of their connection with Judaism, including circumcision, which was not a sign they were showing to anybody, but it was understood that that was happening. There were all kinds of stuff. They wore certain kinds of clothes. They talked in a certain way, right? They had a tribe, 12 of them actually, but they had a whole thing going on. You knew that you were a Jew. You kept yourself away from other people. You did that whole thing, and they thought that in that, because of that, they were going to be righteous, and what's being said here is that you can do all that. And if you transgress the law, you, none of it means anything. And by the way, the Gentile who doesn't transgress the law gets all that too, even though he hasn't done those things or she hasn't done those things. And by the way, you're judging them thinking you're in this position, but if they actually do what's right, they're in a position to judge you. Not something a Jew wants to hear, that a Gentile could judge them for their unrighteousness. This is blowing them away. Like for us, we're like, yeah, okay, we get it. Hypocrisy is bad. This is blowing them away. Breaking down the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Breaking down the idea that by birthright, you're more important than somebody else. We have had that problem. It has existed from then. It exists today. Look at the issues that we have that continue to go on, whether it's racism or sexism, 
whether it's classism, whether it's whatever, the idea that some people are better than other people has persisted, and those who think they're the ones who are better have an interest in hanging on to it. And Paul's saying, get rid of that nonsense. As Dr. King talked about, we don't judge by the color of sin, but by the content of character. That's what he's saying. It's the one who does what's right, not the one who looks the right way, is in the right club, goes to the right church, has the fish sticker on the back of their car. As they give the number one sign to the person that cut them off, right? I love that. See somebody all road rage and it's like, honk if you love Jesus. Like, okay, that's why you're honking. I don't think that's why you're honking. Anyway, this is, this should shake us because the tendency is that we get in, we get saved, which is amazing. We start to live better because God has transformed us, making us into a new person. And after a while, we start to think that either we did it or that we're important because of it. It's just the way things go. Satan will tempt you to that kind of pride. And it is absolute and utter nonsense. You are not better than your sinful neighbor. You're just saved. You're just saved. Now, it's 11.24, and Pastor Daniel's back there looking at me, wanting to sing songs. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. But I want you to understand what has been so clear from this. And there's a reason. It seems kind of repetitive. There's a reason it's repetitive. Do not forget who you were and who you are through Jesus Christ. Do not forget it. Because if you forget it, it makes it too easy to look at your neighbor and forget that you were that. All of it, and frankly, worse. At least I was worse. That gives you the grace and the love and the smile and the care to the weird person, to the homeless person, to the undocumented person, to the political enemy. Have some love in your heart. Because God loves these people desperately. Now, I'm not going to have time to go through this right here, okay? Um, if you would like to, and it is fun, it took me a long time. What I've done is I've taken this chapter, and I've broken it into the argumentative form. So you'll see that it starts, it starts with verse 6 through 11, then 17 to 20, whatever. We come back around, kind of the beginning is at the end. It, uh, bottom line is it, it puts the flow of the, of the syllogistic argument. I want you to have that, have it for your records. Whether you want, look at it or not, that's up to you, but it's really good. Um, and so the last thing I want to leave you with this morning, this Mother's Day, is that some of you starting with me, can fall into this issue where we start to feel like we're righteous in our own righteousness. If that's you today, make your heart right with God, because we're going to take communion in a minute. You guys can start passing it out. Just hold on to the communion when you get it. We're going to take it together in a little bit. Your righteousness is from Jesus. It's not from yourself. If you are not a Christ follower, everything that is written here is true about your current state. You are under judgment. You will experience judgment and anguish and death. 
if you do not accept Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel, being that Jesus came and died for you. He did not do it because you were good. He did it because you needed it. And he paid the price for your sin. Anybody who wants to, to play out Jesus as something other than God who became man, who died literally on a cross and who bodily rose from the dead, is lying to you, both as a historical matter and as a spiritual matter. So if you're online and you want to talk to us, info at actschurchnw.org, you want to talk about Jesus. If you're here, when we start singing, we take communion, you can walk right back there, right past the two uh, restrooms and into that back room. And there are people who will talk to you, who will love you, who will pray for you, and who will put you in a position to accept Jesus Christ and to follow him with your life.